Hello. So I announced earlier today that I'm writing a book about Christopher Hitchens. Uh, the reason I chose today to announce it uh, is because uh, today, of course, is the 10th anniversary of his death. Uh, but I thought I would celebrate it uh, a little um, a little more uh, today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out some interesting passages from various uh, of his of his works over the years. Uh, I don't know how long this will go on for. Uh, hopefully not too long. You can tell I don't live a very exciting life if this is what I'm doing with my nights. Um, I'd also recommend, uh, I, also, I posted a podcast I did with Iona Italia, Ben Burgess and Matt Johnson. Uh, in that podcast at the beginning, I read out a, a section from uh, an essay I wrote a few months back about Hitchens and the Salman Rushdie fatwa. So I was thinking about reading that essay here, but I thought that will just that's too self-indulgent. Uh, but if you're interested in that, then uh, just go to that podcast in the previous post. Right. So firstly, I want to read the introduction to his... Uh, very first published essay collection in 1988, Prepared for the Worst. And I think it's interesting that this introduction uh, was, of course, written at a time when he was very much a uh, an avowed socialist. Uh, this was long before his, his, uh, his turn, if we want to call it that, uh, after 9-11. Um... I think it's, it's uh, this uh, this pass well this introduction contains lots of themes that I think are very consistent throughout his career. So I just I found it very interesting revisiting this earlier today. So I'll stop waffling. Here I go. Nadine Gordimer once wrote or said that she tried to write posthumously. She did not mean that she wanted to speak from beyond the grave common enough authorial fantasy, but that she aimed to communicate as if she were already dead. Never mind that that ambition is axiomatically impossible of achievement, and never mind that it sounds at once rather modest and rather egotistic, to say nothing of rather gaunt. When I read it, I still thought, gosh, to write as if editors, publishers, colleagues, peers, friends, relatives, factions, reviewers and consumers need not be consulted. To write as if supply and demand, time and place, were nugatory. What a just attainment that would be, and what a pristine observance, and what a pristine observance of the much corrupted pact between writer and reader. The essays, articles, reviews, and columns that comprise prepared for the worst do not meet or approach the exacting Gordimer standard in any respect. In fact. So far from addressing people posthumously, I feel rather that I'm standing over my collection like an anxious parent. Friends and even acquaintances tend naturally to praise my little son, at least to my face, and I've become used to inserting the discount of allowances for myself. You've got to realise that he's a bit spoiled. He's keener to talk than he is on what he's saying. He's a bit lacking in concentration, and so on. Still, the teacher did say just the other day that he was very inquiring and showed distinct promise, sympathetic, encouraging nods all round. You don't get that kind of indulgence for your prose. 
hopeless then to seek to justify the ensuing. Yes, the piece on Reagan's mendacity was written to the tune of an emollient week in the national press. Yes, the review of Brideshead was composed in response to a TV travesty then in vogue. Yes, the report from Beirut understates the horror, didn't everybody? But then, might it not be said that the Polish article has a dash of prescience? The Paul Scott essay, perhaps a hint of perspective? Forget it. Never explain, never apologise. You can either write posthumously or you can't. Fortunately, Miss Gordimer does set another example that a mortal may try to follow. She combines an irreducible radicalism with a certain streak of humour, scepticism and detachment. She's also a determined internationalist. My choice among her novels would be A Guest of Honour, wherein the central character sees his beloved revolution besmirched and yet does not feel tempted, entitled might be a better word, to ditch his principles. The whole is narrated with an exceptional clarity of eye, ear and brain, and there is no sparing of progressive illusions. The result is oddly confirming. You end by feeling that the attachment to principle was right the first time and cannot be, as it were, retrospectively abolished by the calamitous cynicism that only idealists have the power to unleash. Most of the articles and essays in this book were written in a period of calamitous cynicism that was actually inaugurated by calamitous cynics. It was, I'm using the past tense in a hopeful, non-posthumous manner, a time of political and cultural conservatism. There was a ghastly relief and relish in the way in which inhibition against allegedly confining and liberal prejudices was cast off. In the United States, this Saturnalia took the form of an abysmal chauvinism, financed by MasterCard and celebrating a debased kind of hedonism. In Britain, where there were a few obeisances to the idea of sacrifice and the postponement of gratification, it took the more traditional form of restoring vital incentives to those who had for so long lived precariously off the fat of the land. In both, in in both instances, the resulting vulgarity and spleen were sufficiently gross to attract worried comment from the keepers of consensus. Now, I have always wanted to agree with Lady Bracknell that there is no earthly use for the upper and lower classes unless they set each other a good example. But I shouldn't pretend that the consensus itself was any of my concern. It was absurd and slightly despicable in the first decade of Thatcher and Reagan to hear former and actual radicals intone piously against the politics of confrontation. I suppose that, if this collection has a point... It is the desire of one individual to see the idea of confrontation kept alive. Periclean Greeks employed the term idiotis without any connotation of stupidity or subnormality to mean simply a person indifferent to public affairs. Obviously, there is something wanting in the apolitical personality, but we have also come to suspect the idiocy of politicisation of the professional Paul and power broker. The two idiocies make a perfect match with the apathy of the first permitting the depredations of the second. I have tried to write about politics in an elusive manner that draws upon other interests and to approach literature and criticism without ignoring the political dimension. Even if I have failed in this synthesis, I have found the attempt worth making. Call no man lucky until he is dead. 
but there have been moments of rare satisfaction in the often random and fragmented life of the radical freelance scribbler. I have lived to see Ronald Reagan called a useful idiot for Kremlin propaganda by his former idolaters. To see the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union regarded with fear and suspicion by the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia, which blacked out an interview with Miloš Forman broadcast live on Moscow TV. To see Mao Zedong relegated like a despot of antiquity. I've also had the extraordinary pleasure of revisiting countries, Greece, Spain, Zimbabwe and others, that were dictatorships or colonies when first I saw them. Other many rakes have melted like dew, often bringing exiled and imprisoned friends blinking modestly and honourably into the glare. A poor si movi, it still moves all right. Religions and states and classes and tribes and nations do not have to work or argue for their adherents and subjects. They more or less inherit them. Against this unearned patrimony, there have always been speakers and writers who embody Einstein's injunction to remember your humanity and forget the rest. It would be immodest to claim membership in this fraternity slash sorority, but I hope not to have done anything to outrage it. Despite the idiotic sneer that such principles are fashionable, it is always the ideas of secularism, libertarianism, internationalism and solidarity that stand in need of reaffirmation. There we go. As you can see, as you can probably tell, I'm doing this all in a first take, so there may be uh, uh, mistakes. Um, I'm sure you'll forgive me if you bother to listen this far. Uh, as I was reading that out, I thought the paragraph on uh, on uh, the on revolutions that have been betrayed or lost to history. Um, interesting uh, with the statement that despite that uh, despite that happening uh, the principle, it was still right in the first place that the principles can't be retrospectively abolished uh, by the betrayal or the end of the, of, the, of the dream which I think was reflected in Hitchens after, after his abandonment of, of socialism uh, because unlike many uh, people who have uh, moved away from, from that side uh, of politics or from that ideology, uh, he retained a lot of... Uh, he didn't disavow his radical past. Uh, in fact, he continued to, to, to be a radical, just of a slightly different sort. Uh, but he didn't disavow his radicalism. He still uh, believed... Uh, that Trotsky and Luxembourg, for example, were noble and admirable figures. So he retained those principles all the way to the very end, uh, despite losing uh, his ideology, despite the despite the his beloved revolution being besmirched, as he might say in this uh, from this uh, introduction. Right now, next. Uh, I'm just going to read a short half a paragraph, which I think ties into the last paragraph of uh, of that uh, introduction. Um, it's from uh, the 
2008 reissue, paperback reissue of Ayan Her CLE's memoir Infidel, for which Hitchens wrote an introduction. Uh, and this uh, half paragraph, I think, uh, shows both the, the principles that he came to more uh, to focus uh, more centrally on in his latter years, um, but which still show that uh, really interesting continuity between the Hitchens of 1988 and uh, the post-9-11 Hitchens, the Hitchens of 2008. So, to invoke Immanuel Kant's principle of universality, we might be able to say, with a high degree of confidence, that the world would be a better place if her, Ayan, her CLE's, ethos was to be the determining one. Can we say the same for those who play the dull game of temporising, compromising, affectless moral equivalence? We're unlikely to arrive at a time when examples of individual moral courage and intellectual honesty are not the clue to a larger scheme of liberty. As long as we continue to value these qualities, infidel will count as a rebuke to all those who claim to see no difference between secular civilization and clerical barbarism, and as an inspiration to all those who view this confrontation without apology as the defining struggle of our time. Well, that was a that was a nice short one. Um, next, I'm going to read the foreword to the uh, paperback, the 2011 paperback reissue of Hitch Twenty Two, his memoir, which um, <clears throat> I think uh, so. By this point, he knows he's dying, um, and I just find it a very, again, a very. Um, moving and interesting statement of some of his core principles which as uh Matt Johnson my friend Matt Johnson uh is writing who's also writing a book about Hitchens which I've uh, had the pleasure of reading in manuscript form um argues uh he also argues this in a recent piece in Ariel magazine which I highly recommend that um that uh, Hitchens uh, the later Hitchens, the last decade Hitchens, uh, actually returned far more to his first principles, to his foundational principles, and became less concerned, perhaps, with the everyday politics. Um, the, the, the Hitchens of the last decade was a man who, uh, who had discovered where he stood, had discovered uh, that the basic principles of democracy and secularism and reason and science um, were the most radical uh, principles uh, that, can, that, that, uh, that are applicable today and that stand ever in need of, of defence. Um, I think you can see that throughout his memoir. And again, this is a thread that you can see in the 1988 introduction to Prepared for the Worst. Um, but, you know, towards the end, you know, in the last decade, he wasn't any longer a, a committed ideological socialist. And so he was able to be more, well, almost more posthumous in a sense, because uh, he had those first principles which retained their power long after all of the 
everyday struggles of of uh, of politics are long over a distant memory. Anyway, uh, as I said, I'm doing this all on a first take, so I'm rambling. Uh, unlike the man that I'm uh, writing about and reading, uh, I'm not uh, clearly not a brilliant uh, speaker, uh, impromptu speaker, but uh, I'll try my I'll do my best. Uh, and now I'm going. To, and now I'm going to retreat into his words so that I don't, so that I, I don't keep rambling. <clears throat> anyway, forward to Hitch Twenty Two Paperback Edition. Do not aspire to immortal life, but exhaust the limits of the possible. Pindar Pythian Three. I hope it will not seem presumptuous to assume that anybody likely to have got as far as acquiring this paperback re-edition of my memoir will know that it was written by someone who, without appreciating it at the time, had become seriously and perhaps mortally ill. In any case, I believe that it may strike some readers, as it now very forcibly strikes the author, that the first three chapters, as well as many of the ensuing passages, show strong preoccupation with impending death, or with deaths in my family. To some extent, this is natural and proper in any work of autobiography. I took on the job of writing it when I was approaching and crossing the small but noticeable frontier of my sixth decade, a time when one has begun to notice the names of contemporaries on the obituary pages. When the book was published, I had just turned 61. I'm writing this at a moment when, according to my doctors, I cannot be certain of celebrating another birthday. On the other hand, so to say, and thanks to the brilliance and skill of these same physicians, I could hope to live for several more years and even to find them enjoyable and profitable. How different is this in the last analysis from the life I was living before? One always knows that there is a term limit to the lifespan, just as one always knows that illness or accident or incapacity, physical and mental, are never more than a single breath away. To take this up in narrative form, to resume the story regardless, I had been becoming aware, as the book neared completion, that I was becoming increasingly easily tired. Once or twice, people who had seen me on television wrote to express concern about my appearance. But I invariably recuperated from exhaustion without much trouble, and all my routine medical examinations found me in exceptional health for someone of my age. In any case, my life is my work, and vice versa, and I've always arranged it so as to be deliberately overstretched. I positively enjoyed travelling to writing assignments or speaking engagements on the average of about once a week while meeting a series of columnar deadlines. And I never lacked for friends or company, and continued to seek out both voraciously. Like the man in the old story, I sometimes laughed that if I'd known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. Stories about my bohemian lifestyle have been exaggerated, as I go on to discuss in these pages, but perhaps not by all that much. I had evolved a very productive and, to me, satisfying regime. If some of it depended a bit on cocktails and late nights of reading or argument, or even, in the course of writing this book, a lapse back into the smoking habit, I thought the wager was worth it. Thus was my state of relative insouciance until the spring of 2010, when I received the advance schedule of the upcoming publicity tour for this book. It was to be a brilliant and lavish thing, extending from Australia to Britain to the United States and Canada. I take no stock in precognition, 
It's very obvious to me now that my body was trying to tell me something, but merely set down the fact that I read through the schedule and quite calmly thought, I shall never get to the end of it. Mentally, I was preparing myself to take several months off, something I have never wanted before, and book a serious appointment with a doctor. The tour began well, but my system soon asserted itself. I was failed first in New York, where I learned that I should seek a cancer biopsy, and then, having had the biopsy and deciding to keep as many engagements as possible while I waited for the results in Boston. My dear friend Kerry Goldstein, who was with me on both occasions, is the reason why these paragraphs can be written. Ever since, I have lived from one chemotherapy application to another, and, in some periods, from one painkiller to the next, while awaiting the possibility of a treatment that is specific to my own genes and my own malignancy. I suffer from stage 4 esophageal cancer. There is no stage 5. A continuous theme in Hitch 22 is the requirement, exacted by a life of repeated contradictions, to keep two sets of books. My present condition intensifies this rather than otherwise. I'm forced to make simultaneous preparations to die and to go on living. Lawyers in the morning, as I once put it, and doctors in the afternoon. One of the happier dimensions of my life, that of travel, has been foreclosed to me, a great misery. But I have found that I still possess the will to write, as well as the indispensable thing for any writer, the avid need to read. Even when attenuated by the shorter amount of time that I am conscious during each day, and circumscribed by the thought of an eventual loss of consciousness altogether, this is only a little less than I used to be quietly grateful for, the ability to earn a living by doing the two things that mean most to me. Another element of my memoir, the stupendous importance of love, friendship and solidarity, has been made immensely more vivid to me by recent experience. I can't hope to convey the full effect of the embraces and avowals, but I can perhaps offer a crumb of counsel. If there is anybody known to you who might benefit from a letter or a visit, do not on any account postpone the writing or the making of it. The difference made will almost certainly be more than you have calculated. The cause of my life has been that of combating superstition. Which among, which among other things means confronting the dreads upon which it feeds. For some inexplicable reason, our culture regards it as normal, even creditable, for the godly to admonish those who they believe to be expiring. A whole tawdry edifice of fabricated deathbed conversions and moist devotional literature has arisen on this highly questionable assumption. Though I, could have cho- though I could have chosen to take offence at being silkily invited to jettison my convictions when an extremist, what an insult and what a non-sequitur too. I was actually grateful for the heavy attention I received from the faithful. It gave my atheism, if you like, a new lease on life. It also helped me keep open a long debate to which I am proud to have contributed a little. To say that this debate will outlast me would have been true at any time. Instead of attending prayer breakfasts in my own honour on what was actually designated on the web as Pray for Hitchens Day, I have spent much of the past year registering myself as an experimental subject for various clinical trials and protocols, mainly genome-based and aimed at enlarging human knowledge and at shrinking the area of darkness and terror where cancer holds dominion. 
My aim here is obviously not quite disinterested, but many of the experiments are at a stage where any results will be too far in the future to be of help to me. In this book I cite Horace Mann's injunction, until you have done something for humanity, you should be ashamed to die. So this is a modest and slight response to his challenge, to be sure, but my own. The eruption of death into my life has enabled me to express a trifle more concretely my contempt for the false consolation of religion and belief in the centrality of science and reason. Not all my views have been vindicated, even to me. I see that I write that I personally want to do death in the active and not the passive and to be there to look it in the eye and be doing something when it comes for me. I cannot quite sustain this jauntiness in light of what I now know. Should the best efforts of my physician friends be unavailing, I possess a fairly clear idea of how stage 4 esophageal cancer harvests its victims. The terminal process doesn't allow for much in the way of activity, or even of composed farewells, let alone stoic or Socratic departures. This is why I am so grateful to have had, already, a lucid interval of some length and to have filled it with the same elements of friendship and love and literature and the dialectic, with which I hope some of this book is also animated. I wasn't born to do any of the things I set down here, but I was born to die, and this coda must be my attempt to assimilate the narrative to its conclusion. Well then, um, I've only got two more readings uh, to do. Uh, this one is actually not from Christopher Hitchens, but it is from his uh, wife and widow, Carol Blue. Um, at the end of Mortality, his last book released in 2012 after he died, which collects some of his writings about his uh, cancer, his experiences with cancer and and uh, the eruption of death into his life, as, as he says in that Hitch 22 foreword. Uh, and Carol Blue wrote this rather moving afterward, which I thought was worth reading out. So here goes. On stage, my husband was an impossible act to follow. If you ever saw him at the podium, you may not share Richard Dawkins's assessment that he was the greatest orator of our time. But you will know what I mean. Or at least you won't think she would say that she's his wife. Off stage, my husband was an impossible act to follow. At home, at one of the raucous, joyous, impromptu eight-hour dinners we often found ourselves hosting, where the table was so crammed with ambassadors, hacks, political dissidents, college students and children, that elbows were colliding and it was hard to find the space to put down a glass of wine, my husband would rise to give a toast that could go on for a stirring, spellbinding, hysterically funny twenty minutes of poetry and limerick reciting, a call to arms for a cause, and jokes. How good it is to be us, he would say in his perfect voice. My husband is an impossible act to follow. And yet, now I must follow him. I have been forced to have the last word. It was the sort of early summer evening in New York, when all you can think of is living... It was June 8, 2010 to be exact, the first day of his American book tour. I ran as fast as I could down East 93rd Street 
suffused with joy and excitement at the sight of him in his white suit. He was dazzling. He was also dying, though we didn't know it yet. And we wouldn't know it for certain until the day of his death. Earlier that day, he had taken a detour from his book launch to a hospital because he thought he was having a heart attack. By the time I saw him standing at the stage entrance of the 92nd Street Y that evening, he and I, and we alone, knew he might have cancer. We embraced in a shadow that only we saw and chose to defy. We were euphoric. He lifted me up and we laughed. We went into the theatre, where he conquered yet another audience. We managed to get through a jubilant dinner in his honour and set out on a stroll back to our hotel through the perfect Manhattan night, walking more than 50 blocks. Everything was as it should be, except that it wasn't. We were living in two worlds. The old one, which never seemed more beautiful, had not yet vanished, and the new one, about which we knew little except to fear it, had not yet arrived. The new world lasted 19 months. During this time of what he called living dyingly, he insisted ferociously on living, and his constitution, physical and philosophical, did all it could to stay alive. Christopher was aiming to be among the 5-20% to 20% of those who could be cured. The odds depended on what doctor we talked to and how they interpreted the scans. Without ever deceiving himself about his medical condition, and without ever allowing me to entertain illusions about his prospects for survival. He responded to every bit of clinical and statistical good news with a radical, childlike hope. His will to keep his existence intact, to remain engaged with his preternatural intensity, was spectacular. Thanksgiving was his favourite holiday, and I watched with awe as he organised, even as he was sick from the effects of the chemotherapy grand family gathering in Toronto with all his children and his father-in-law on the eve of an important debate with Tony Blair about religion. This was an occasion orchestrated by a man who told me in the hotel suite that night that this would probably be his last Thanksgiving. Not long before, back in Washington, on a bright and balmy Indian summer afternoon, he excitedly summoned his family and visiting friends on an outing to see the Origins of Man exhibition at the Museum of Natural History when I watched him sprint out of a cab and up the granite steps to throw up in a trash can before leading his charges through the galleries and exuberantly impressing us with the attainments of science and reason. Christopher's charisma never left him. Not in any realm. Not in public, not in private, not even in the hospital. He made a party of it, transforming the sterile, chilly and neon-lighted, humming and beeping and blinking room into a study and a salon. His artful conversation never ceased. Constant interruptions, the poking and prodding, the sample taking, the the breathing treatments, the IV bags being changed. Nothing kept him from holding court, making a point or an argument or hitting a punchline for his guests. He listened and drew us out and had us all laughing. He was always asking for and commenting on another newspaper, another magazine, another novel, another review copy. We stood around his bed and reclined on plastic upholstered chairs, upholstered chairs as he made us into participants in his Socratic discourses. One night he was coughing up blood and was wheeled into the ICU for a hastily scheduled bronchoscopy. 
I alternated between watching over him and sleeping in a convertible chair. We lay side by side in our single beds. At one point we both woke up and started burbling like children at a sleepover party. At the time, this was the best it was going to get. When he came to following the bronchoscopy, after the doctor told him the trouble in his windpipe was not cancer but rather pneumonia, he was still intubated but avidly scribbling notes and questions about every conceivable subject. I saved the pages of paper on which he wrote his side of the conversation. There are sweet nothings and a picture he drew on the top of the first page and then... Pneumonia. What type? Am I cancer free? Pain is hard to remember. Right now, four to five. He asked after the children and my father. How's Edwin? Tell him I asked. I worry about him. Because I love him. I want to hear him. Slightly down the page, he wrote what he wanted me to bring him from our guest house in Houston. Nietzsche, Mencken and Chesterton books. Plus all random bits paper. Maybe in one hold-all bag. Look in the drawers, bedside, etc. Up and downstairs. That night, a dear family friend arrived from New York and was in the room when, in one of his nocturnal interludes of wakefulness and energy, Christopher flashed an open, wide smile around the tube still running down his throat and wrote on his clipboard, I'm staying here in Houston until I'm cured, and then I'm taking our families on a vacation to Bermuda. The next morning, after they took the tube out, I came into his room to find him smiling his fox-like grin at me. Happy anniversary, he called out. A nurse came in with a small white cake, paper plates and plastic forks. Another wedding anniversary. We are reading the newspaper on the terrace in our suite in a New York hotel. It is a faultless fall day. Our two-year-old daughter is sitting contentedly beside us, drinking a bottle. She climbs off her chair and squats down, inspecting something on the ground. She pulls the bottle out of her mouth, calls to me and points to a large motionless bumblebee. She is alarmed, shaking her head back and forth, as if to say, No, no, no. The bee stopped, she says. Then she makes a command. Make it start. Back then she believed I had the power to reanimate the dead. I don't recall what I said to her about the bee. What I do recall are the words, make it start. Christopher then lifted her into his lap and consoled and distracted her with a change of subject and humour. Just as he would, with all of his children, so many years later, when he was ill. I miss his perfect voice. I heard it day and night. Night and day. I missed the first happy trills when he woke the low octaves of his morning voice as he read me snippets from the newspaper that outraged or amused him. The delighted and irritated, mostly irritated, registers as I interrupted him while he read. The jazz tone riffs of him talking down the line to a radio station from the kitchen phone as he cooked lunch. His chirping high note greeting when our daughter came home from school and his last soothing pianissimo chatterings on retiring late at night. I miss, as his readers must, his writer's voice, his voice on the page. I miss the unpublished hitch, 
the countless notes he left for me in the entryway, on my pillow, the emails he would send while we sat in different rooms in our apartment or in our place in California, and the emails he sent when he was on the road. And I miss his handwritten communiques, his innumerable letters and postcards, we date back to the time of the epistle, and his faxes, the thrill of receiving Christopher's instant dispatches as he checked in from a dicey spot on some other continent. The first time Christopher went public and wrote about his illness for Vanity Fair, he was ambivalent about it. He was intent on protecting our family's privacy. He was living the topic and he didn't want it to become all-encompassing. He didn't want to be defined by it. He wanted to think and write in a sphere apart from sickness. He had made a pact with his editor and chum, Graydon Carter, that he would write about anything except sports, and he kept that promise. He had often put himself in the frame, but now he was the ultimate subject of the story. His last words of the unfinished fragmentary jottings at the end of this little book may seem to trail off, but in fact they were written on his computer in bursts of energy and enthusiasm as he sat in the hospital using his food tray for a desk. When he was admitted to the hospital for the last time, we thought it would be for a brief stay. He thought, we all thought, he'd have the chance to write the longer book that was forming in his mind. His intellectual curiosity was sparked by genomics and the cutting-edge proton radiation treatments he underwent, and he was encouraged by the prospect that his case could contribute to future medical breakthroughs. He told an editor friend waiting for an article, Sorry for the delay, I'll be back home soon. He told me he couldn't wait to catch up on all the movies he had missed and to see the King Tut exhibition in Houston, our temporary residence. The end was unexpected. At home in Washington, I pull books off the shelves, out of the book towers on the floor, off the stacks of volumes on tables. Inside the back covers are notes written in his hand that he took for reviews and for himself. Piles of his papers and notes lie on surfaces all around the apartment, some of which were taken from his suitcase that I brought back from Houston. At any time I can peruse our library or his notes and rediscover and recover him. When I do, I hear him, and he has the last word. Time after time, Christopher has the last word. Well, uh, before I do give Christopher Hitchens the last word, uh, I want to read a quick paragraph from Inside Story, Martin Amos's uh, book uh, from 2020, uh, which, among other things discusses uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, and their friendship. Uh, and in a scene uh, where uh, Amos and Carol Blue uh, meet up uh, not too long after Hitchens' death, um, he recounts uh, that they you know, they have a fun time, they're laughing and smiling, uh, which seems slightly odd given that they're both uh, in mourning. Uh, and then we get this paragraph, which I think is quite lovely. We had both experienced it, an infusion, an invasion of overpowering happiness. Happiness, the delight of sentience. All right, this is what seemed to have taken place. The love of life of the hitch, the existential amour fou of the hitch, the uncontrollable or obsessive passion, had in part transferred itself to us. 
and henceforth we agreed it would be our solemn duty to maintain it and to honour it. There we go. And now, as I said, uh, I don't mean to keep wittering on. Uh, it's always a risk discussing Christopher Hitchens or writing about him or speaking about him because it's uh, next to impossible to live up to his standards of speech and writing. But uh, some of us foolishly uh, try to do it anyway. But as I said, uh, I want to give him the last word. Um, and this, since I started with his introduction to his very first essay collection, I shall now read his introduction to his final one, or the final one that he published during his lifetime. There have been a couple published um, posthumously. Uh, so this is arguably from 2011, uh, his last essay collection. His introduction, which I think again shows some of the consistencies of his uh, preoccupations and also as a good very good uh, and brief explication of, of some of his core uh, principles especially as he came to view them after uh, after uh, giving up socialism and abandoning uh, after giving up socialism and uh, the events of September 11 2001 so arguably as dedicated uh, to the memory of Mohammed Bouazizi, Abu Abdel, Monam, Hamedi, and Ali Mehdi Ziou. Again, I apologise if I uh, am making really uh, gauche um, uh, mistakes in pronunciation there. Uh, as I said, this is a bit of a, it's a first take, so I try my best. Anyway, that's the, the dedication, uh, and now the, uh, the actual introduction to the book. The three names on the dedication page belonged to a Tunisian street vendor, an Egyptian restaurateur and a Libyan husband and father. In the spring of 2011, the first of them set himself alight in the town of Sidi Bouzid in protest at just one too many humiliations at the hands of petty officialdom. The second also took his own life as Egyptians began to rebel en masse at the stagnation and meaninglessness of Mubarak's Egypt. The third, it might be said, gave his life as well as took it, loading up his modest car with petrol and homemade explosives and blasting open the gate of the Katiba barracks in Benghazi, symbolic Bastille of the detested and demented Gaddafi regime in Libya. In a long human struggle, the idea of martyrdom presents itself with a Janus-like face. Those willing to die for a cause larger than themselves, have been honoured from the Periclean funeral oration to the Gettysburg Address. Viewed more sceptically, those with a zeal to die have sometimes been suspected, uh, have sometimes been suspect for excessive enthu- enthusiasm and self-righteousness, even fanaticism. The anthem of my old party, the British Labour Party, speaks passionately of a flag that is deepest red and which is shrouded off to our martyred dead. Underneath my college windows at Oxford stood, stands, the memorial to the Oxford martyrs, bishops Cranmer, Latimer and Ridley, who were burned alive for Protestant heresies by the Catholic Queen Mary in October 1555. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, wrote the church father Tertullian in late 1st century Carthage. 
and the association of the martyr with blind faith has been consistent down the centuries, with the faction being burned often waiting for its own turn to do the burning. I think the Labour Party can be acquitted on that charge. So can Jan Palak, the young Czech student who immolated himself in Wenceslas Square in January 1969 in protest against the Soviet occupation of his country. I helped organise a rally at the Oxford Memorial in his honour and later became associated with the Palak Press, a centre of exile, dissent and publication which was a contributor two decades later to the Velvet Revolution of 1989. This was a completely secular and civil initiative which never caused a drop of human blood to be spilled. Especially over the course of the last ten years, the word martyr has been utterly degraded by the wolfish image of Muhammad Atta, a cold and loveless zombie, a suicide murderer, who took as many innocents with him as he could manage. The organisations that find and train men like Atta have since been responsible for unutterable crimes in many countries and societies, from England to Iraq, in their attempt to create a system where the cold and loveless zombie would be the norm and culture would be dead. They claim that they will win because they love death more than life and because life lovers are feeble and corrupt degenerates. Practically every word I have written since 2001 has been explicitly or implicitly directed at refuting and defeating those hateful, nihilistic propositions, as well as those among us who try to explain them away. The Tunisian, Egyptian and Libyan martyrs were thinking and acting much more like Palak than like Atta. They were not trying to take life. They desired, rather, that it be lived on a higher level than that of a serf, treated as an inconvenience by a moribund oligarchy. They did not make sordid and boastful claims about how their homicidal actions would earn them a place in a gross fantasy of carnal afterlife. They did not wish to inspire hoarse yelling mobs tossing coffins on a sea of hysteria. Jan Palak told his closest comrades that the deep reason for his gesture was not just the occupation, but the awful apathy that was settling over Prague as that spring gave way to a frosty winter. In preferring a life-affirming death to a living death in life, the harbingers of the Arab Spring likewise hoped to galvanise their fellow subjects and make them aspire to be citizens. Tides will ebb, waves will recede, the landscape will turn brown and dusty again, but nothing can expel from the Arab mind the example and esprit of Tahrir. Once again, it has demonstrated that people do not love their chains or their jailers, and that the aspiration for a civilised life, that universal eligibility to be noble, as Saul Bellows or Marsh so imperishably phrases it, is proper and common to all. Invited to deliver a lecture at the American University of Beirut in February 2009, with the suggested title, Who are the real revolutionaries in the Middle East? I did my best to blow on the few sparks that then seemed dimly perceptible. I instanced the burgeoning civil resistance in Iran. I cited the great Egyptian dissident and political scientist and political prisoner, Saad Eddin Ibrahim, now recognised as one of the intellectual fathers of the Tahrir movement. I praised the Cedar Revolution movement in Lebanon itself, which had brought about a season of hope and succeeded in putting an end to the long Syrian occupation of the country. I took the side of the Kurdish forces in Iraq who had helped write Faris 
to the Caligula regime of Saddam Hussein, while also beginning the work of autonomy for the region's largest and most oppressed minority. I praised the work of Salim Fayyad, who was attempting to bring transparency to bear on the Baroque corruption of the Palestinian Authority. These were the disparate but not unconnected strands out of which, I hoped and part believed, a new cloth could be woven. It was clear that a good number of the audience, including, I regret to say, most of the Americans, regarded me as some kind of stooge. For them, revolutionary authenticity belonged to groups like Hamas or Hezbollah, resolute opponents of the global colossus and tireless fighters against Zionism. For me, this was yet another round in a long historic dispute. Briefly stated, this ongoing polemic takes place between the anti-imperialist left and the anti-totalitarian left. In one shape or another, I've been involved on both sides of it all my life. And, in the case of any conflict, I have increasingly resolved it on the anti-totalitarian side. This may not seem much of a claim, but some things need to be found out by experience and not merely derived from principle. Several of these rehearsals and excursions of mine were discussed in my memoir, Hitch 22, and several of them are reflected here too, again in reportage as well as argument. I affirm that the forces who regard pluralism as a virtue, moderate though that may make them sound, are far more profoundly revolutionary, and quite likely over the longer term, to make better anti-imperialists as well. Evolving or honing any of these viewpoints has necessitated constant argument about the idea of America. There is currently much easy talk about the decline of my adopted country, both in confidence and in resources. I don't choose to join this denigration. The secular republic, with the separation of powers, is still the approximate model, whether acknowledged or not, of several democratic revolutions that are in progress or impending. Sometimes the United States is worthy of the respect to which the simulation entitles it, sometimes not. We're not, as in the question of waterboarding discussed later, I endeavour to say so. I also believe that the literature and letters of the country since the founding show forth a certain allegiance to the revolutionary and emancipating idea, and in a section on American traditions I try to breathe my best on those sparks too. Barbarism, wrote Alan Finkelkrauts not long ago, is not the inheritance of our prehistory, it is the companion that dogs our every step. In writing here quite a lot about the examples and lessons of past totalitarianisms, I try not to banish the spectre too much. And how easy it is to recognise the revenant shapes that the old unchanging enemies, racism, leader worship, superstition, assume when they reappear amongst us, often bodyguarded by their new apologists. I have attempted to alleviate the morbid task of combat here by writing also about authors and artists who have contributed to culture and civilization not words or concepts that can be defended simply in the abstract. It took me decades to dare the attempt, but finally I did write about Vladimir Nabokov. The people who must never have power are the humourless, to impossible certainties of rectitude they ally tedium and uniformity. Since an essential element of the American idea is its variety, I have tried to celebrate things that are amusing for their own sake or ridiculous but revealing, or simply of intrinsic interest. 
All of the above might apply to the subject of my little essay on the art and science of the blowjob, for example. While not quite saving me from the most instantly misinterpreted of all my articles concerning the humour deficits as registered by gender. Still, I like to believe that these small-scale ventures too make some contribution to a conversation without limits or prescriptions, the sine qua non of the sort of society that knows to keep the solemn and the pious at bay. This book marks my fifth collection. In the preface to the first one, Prepared for the Worst, in 1988, I annexed a thought of Nadine Gordimer's to the effect that a serious person should try to write posthumously. By that, I took her to mean that one should compose as if the usual constraints of fashion, commerce, self-censorship, public and perhaps especially intellectual opinion did not operate. Impossible, perhaps, to live up to, this admonition and aspiration did possess some muscle, as well as some warning of how it can decay. Then, about a year ago, I was informed by a doctor that I might have as little as another year to live. In consequence... Some of these articles were written with the full consciousness that they might be my very last. Sobering in one way and exhilarating in another, this practice can obviously never become perfected. But it has given me a more vivid idea of what makes life worth living and defending, and I hope very much that some of this may infect those of you who have been generous enough to read me this far. Well, I said that was going to be the last one, and uh, I do want to still give Hitchens the last words, uh, but I can't help but comment on a couple of uh, things that came to mind as I was reading there. Um, one, of course, is the fact that he directly cites the Prepared for the Worst uh, introduction, which provides a nice symmetry to his first and last essay collections. Um when he speaks also about the Arab Spring, uh, it is interesting that he, you know, he was he, he was writing this and, and died uh, before the Arab Spring became, uh, or rather, uh, failed to become what it ought to have been. Uh, but he is, uh, he, he isn't uh, foolishly optimistic about that, as he says, tides, tides will ebb, waves will recede, the landscape will turn brown and dusty again, but nothing can expel from the Arab mind the example and esprit of Tahrir. Uh, and I do think we are seeing that and we have been seeing that for a few years now that despite the uh, generally uh, general failure of the Arab Spring uh, that example, that spirit uh, is resurgent uh, in Iran and Iraq and in so many other places uh, despite uh, some setbacks so indeed the, the landscape has become dusty uh, again uh, tides have ebbed and waves have receded but uh, slowly slowly they, those seeds I think are bearing fruit uh, th- yeah so I think uh, and personally at least one of my main preoccupations is with the the uh, ex-Muslim resistance to tyranny uh, and the or the ex-Muslim and, and reformist and liberal Muslim and sec- secular Muslims' um, resistance to tyranny, um, in particular the, uh, the resistance of the women of Iran, which I think is one of the most uh, inspiring civil rights movements on the planet at the moment. Uh, and I think, actually, and perhaps this is a hostage to fortune, but I think the Iranian regime will fall. Um, 
um, we're going to say <laughs> when I think that will be, but I think its time is, is limited. Um, yes, and the other thing I wanted to quickly mention uh, is that he defines himself here as remaining a member of the anti-totalitarian left. Uh, again, I think it's important to note that although he became, in his own words, post-ideological, he never quite uh, left the left in the way that some people think he did. Uh, again, I recommend the work of Matt Johnson on this on this matter. Uh, his Ario magazine uh, essay uh, published uh, yesterday, I think. Um, and his upcoming book, which, as I said, I've read the manuscript of, which is very good. Uh, to uh, for you know he provides a very good analysis of the core principles that Hitchens evinced uh, throughout his life. Uh, his book is is called How Hitchens Can Save the Left. Um, yes, yeah, so I just I want to recommend Matt's work and uh, to mention that I think that people get it wrong about Hitchens quite a lot to imagine that he was he left he he abandoned radicalism on the left uh he abandoned certain ideas of it and wasn't dogmatically wedded to it um after uh, you know in his last decade or so but uh to a large extent he he uh remained a part of it you know that was his intellectual tradition as he says and i think for the sake of argument his second essay collection in the introduction uh, the left opposition was his was the tradition from which he descended or degenerated from um but anyway uh, i don't want to keep rambling um i did say i would give hitchens the last word and i've kind of ruined that by whittering on again uh so i will just uh read one last paragraph from him uh this is the uh <laughs> this is the la since he mentioned the blowjob essay uh in the introduction to arguably i will read the last uh the last paragraph of that essay which uh, I, I recommend in its entirety. It's a long, hard <clears throat> look at uh, at uh, the the history and nature of the humble uh, blowjob. Okay, here goes. <clears throat> and a celebration of it, it might be said. Here, right. <clears throat> the illusion of the tonsilized clitoris will probably never die. And gay men like to keep their tonsils for a reason that I would not dream of mentioning. But while the G-spot and other fantasies have dissipated, the iconic US prime blowjob is still on a throne, and is also kneeling at the foot of that throne. It has become, in the words of a book on its technique, the ultimate kiss. And such a kiss on the first date is not now considered all that fast. America was not the land of birth for this lavish caress, but it is, if I may mix my anthems, white with foam from sea to shining sea. In other cultures, a girl will do that only when she gets to know and like you. In this one, she will offer it as a baiser as she is making up her mind. While this persists, and while America's gay manhood is still sucking away as if for oxygen itself, who dares to say that true global leadership is not still within our grasp? And that's all, folks. Thank you for indulging me. I apologise for any mistakes of pronunciation and for wittering on. Uh, but yes, here's to Christopher Hitchens, a great writer. 
Uh, much miss. Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>